This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Why is it that caregivers of dementia patients succumb to the anger and arguing and blame that they know is counterproductive? Is it merely a loss of patience or exhaustion, or is there a neurological obstacle? Taking a look at that question has a potentially monumental impact on the almost 7 million caregivers for people with dementia in the United States. These caregivers, many of whom are family members, provide $16 billion worth of unpaid care. And equally devastating is the toll on what Dasha refers to as these invisible victims. Dasha Kipper, after earning a master's in clinical psychology, took herself off her path to a PhD to do the most elemental of clinical work, becoming the caregiver for a 98-year-old dementia patient. The seeming detour set her on the path to studying the neurological obstacles that may prevent the healthy brain of a caregiver to adapt to the cognitively impaired brain. Exploring this challenge is the basis of Dasha Kipper's profoundly compassionate book, Traveler to Unimaginable Lands, Stories of Dementia, the Caregiver, and the Human Brain. Dasha, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you so much for having me on that kind introduction. Well, I was utterly fascinated by every element of this book, and I'm not in a position of a caregiver, thank goodness, but it will make me think about other caregivers that I interact with in an utterly different way. Let's start with this. You slyly open the book with this line. When I was 25 years old, I moved in with a man who was 98. (laughs) So that's a pretty good opening line, Dasha, but what brought you to that step? (laughs) What's going on? What indeed? (laughs) Um, You know, I I write in the preface that I really did think I was going to be an academic, but I think I was so, I ended up being quite disheartened in academia because the emotional fulfillment and the intellectual fulfillment that I was hoping to get was just out of reach. And more than anything, I really wanted to feel like I was being of some use. And I really didn't feel that (laughs) when I was working towards my PhD in clinical psychology. I mentioned this to a friend in passing, probably just complaining, not thinking of it at all. And he uh, then said, and I told him I have a big soft spot for working with the elderly population. I just threw that in. And he said, there's a gentleman who has memory loss issues and his son is looking for somebody to take care of him. That's like a 180 pivot to go from academics to this wasn't even seeing patients in an office. No. Right? You were in his apartment. Yeah, I was living there. So describe for us the patient that you call Mr. Kessler in the book and what his condition was 
And what did you expect would happen? Yeah, I'll be happy to describe him like many people. Uh, Dementia or not, he was full of contradictions. He was very sweet in many ways, very kind. I think his his entire self-image was trying to be generous and kind to people. But like many, especially I would say, dare I say, men of that generation, his self-image was that he was not one who needed any help. So uh, needless to say, he had a very hard time acknowledging that he had even, you know, that he had a disease. We would never utter the word Alzheimer's in front of him. And I did my best to really protect his self-image. My expectation was that I would be very protective of him. (laughs) And what really opened up my eyes when I was in the Bronx is that I began to be just as protective of his son, who was the caregiver. I really thought, oh, it's the mind of the person who has the disease that's most vulnerable, that is in the greatest need of protection. It never occurred to me that his son would be any player in this in this um in this world i decided to step into and i realized that his son's predicament was just as fascinating just as moving and just as telling about the human mind as his father's was so it really surprised me and one of the things i i, I want to do before we even move forward because i think there's a lot of confusion or lack of clarity about just what is dementia? Like, is dementia different than Alzheimer's? Is Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's a form of dementia? Mm -hmm. Do they behave? Do people with dementia versus Alzheimer's behave differently? Yeah, I'm so glad that you asked this question. There is a lot of confusion. Dementia, and it surprises a lot of people, is actually not a disorder at all. It's a cluster of symptoms, usually suggesting memory loss, cognitive impairment, impairment to judgment. While Alzheimer's disease, uh, Lewy body, frontal temporal, those are diseases. That is the cause for the dementia. Dementias is just an umbrella term. And some Mm. dementias are reversible because they could be just because you took the wrong medication or have severe dehydration. So dementia is just giving you a set of symptoms while a disease like Alzheimer's explains the reason behind those symptoms and sadly right now is irreversible. Right. And, you know, I thought about this when Mr. Kessler's son's name was Sam, right? Correct. Yes. So one of the things that was interesting, you talk about dementia blindness Mm -hmm. and how invariably a caregiver's most susceptible blind spot is an old familial wound. And, And you Add this, which I've heard a lot of times from people dealing with their husband or parent that develops dementia, that despite evidence of incoherence, getting lost in familiar places, paranoid delusions, even physical evidence, family members still hesitate to make the leap to a neurological diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Why is that? What? Why is it that that happens? And how should we be absorbing this information? Yeah, um, I'll take Sam and his father just to demonstrate what I mean by dementia blindness, even though it appears a little bit later in the book. Oftentimes, I hear caregivers really reprimanding themselves that they didn't notice the disease earlier. And they think, oh, I must have been in denial. Oh, I didn't want to see it. And a part of it is denial. Why would, and I really want to normalize that. Why would anybody want to see this disease? Of course, we have psychological defense mechanisms that make us not want to see this disease. But what I also want to say is, uh, what I also wanted to show is that 
there's not just um, psychological denial that's at play. We all, there are neurological reasons why caregivers, the people with a, allegedly the healthy brain, as I call it, oftentimes miss dementia, even if later on we realize it kind of stares us in the face. And one of them is that the human brain is not very good at noticing things that are anomalies. <laughs> mm. And dementia is a very big anomaly. And what we also often forget is that the relationship <laughs> is very old, but dementia is very new. And dementia symptoms are extremely sneaky and very capable of hiding behind the family dynamic. So for example, when when Mr. Kessler would argue with his son or would forget what his son the instructions his son would tell him or would undermine his son and say, I never said that, or would refuse to listen to him. The outsider could say, oh, that, that's a clear evidence of dementia symptoms, memory loss, or a lack of judgment or inability to follow instructions. But what becomes very apparent is that a caregiver is seeing this through the lens of what they're used to. And that's how our mind works. We tend to see what is familiar, even when something unfamiliar <laughs> is in our presence. And so the way that Sam saw this is, oh, my dad is being his usual stubborn self. My dad is refusing to own up to the fact that he does anything wrong. Mm. Uh, my dad always thinks I'm wrong and he's right. And in fact, that's how his symptoms played out. So that line between pathology and that person's old self and the family wound or the family dynamic, it's so hard to tell where the person begins and the disease starts and vice versa. So this is different than, you know, what I sometimes call willful blindness, meaning, right. you know, you've got a spouse who drinks too much. You've got a, a parent who's actually abusive and you just choose to not want to go there. This right. is different. This is different. And of course they play together, right? Because our mind is not compartmentalized in that way, but it is different because one is you're psychologically shielding yourself right? When you refuse to see abuse. That's the willful blindness. Exactly. That's the willful blindness. But this dementia blindness, and I'm sure it applies to other neurological diseases like schizophrenia or other things, is that our mind does not tend to go to neurological illnesses. It tends to go to psychological explanations because that's what we're familiar with. Mm -hmm. And so uh, name almost any dementia symptom out there. <laughs> and oh, any family member could say, oh, that's just so like mom. That's so like dad <laughs> to behave in this way or that way. And so this is how dementia masks itself. And only later do we realize that because our mind is so good at making a narrative that makes sense to, our, uh, to ourselves and framing the present to look like the past, that we're able to miss these key markers of dementia. Let's use another example, and, and that I actually even want to go over a conversation. Talk about Jasmine and her mother, Pat, yeah, and how she had to step in after her father, Stuart, uh, passed away. Because yeah. I think that's another example of what you call a healthy brain falling for the illusion. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. So there was this moment that Jasmine looked at me and like a lot of caregivers, she started laughing, like, how did I not connect the dots? Her mom and her were driving together and her mom looked at her daughter and said, how do I do this? And Jasmine said, okay, very funny mom. <laughs> like she's driven a million times. And then what happened was 
her mom went into a compartment in the car and came out instructions. And those instructions were in her husband's handwriting. And Jasmine later told me, gosh, I should have realized something was wrong. But instead she said, oh, that's, that's my dad coming to the rescue as always, always helping my mom. Mm. So she framed something that was kind of extreme and, you know, a flamboyant an example of dementia at work, but our mind is so good at kind of uh, sweeping the anomaly and the strangeness under under the rug and creating that narrative of the familiar. Oh, my dad saved the day as he always does. Mm -hmm. And we're going to come back to a conversation they had, but, you know, throughout your book, you use examples of people that you've worked with, which become super helpful in really understanding practically what what happened. So let's let's talk about how someone who is dealing with someone with dementia things that they might think that they need to do but do or don't work. So let's start with notes because you see movies, you read books where they say Oh, well, if you put a note up, don't open the refrigerator, don't eat ice cream, don't go out the door, that that's helpful for the person with dementia to be reminded of what they should or shouldn't do. Is that true? Um, I'm not sure if caregivers are encouraged to do this. I think that what happens is I think caregivers naturally do this. I hear so many caregivers... Um, I, think I stand corrected. No, no. I, by the way, there might be perhaps in early stages, there might be advice given to caregivers to do that. And whether that's effective is very sporadic and unpredictable. But it is a very common tendency I see with caregivers to have notes plastered all over their their house. Don't touch this. Don't yell at the don't don't yell at the aid that comes over. You know, there's so many instructions and so much. Basically, what I call this like universal need for control for caregivers that really tries to remind the person who can't follow instructions usually to try to follow instructions. <laughs> right, right. And and then another one is arguing with them. Yeah. So when you argue with someone with dementia, explain what's going on for the caregiver and explain what's going on for the patient. Like, why does someone caring for them sort of slip into the argument, even though they know it doesn't make any sense? What's what's going on? Well, I'm so glad you mentioned the argument because the truth is, is in every chapter, there's some kind of argument Argument. yeah, where the caregiver knows they're not supposed to argue. And of course it happens anyway. I will try to begin with the person who has the disease where oftentimes, you know, there are a couple of things at work. The person who has the disease, their emotional regulation is impaired. So they're more likely sometimes to be volatile. And actually all of us, when we're feeling particularly vulnerable or angry, we're not particularly open to hearing reason and logic. And that, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, with somebody who has dementia, is already impaired. So technically speaking, the arguments never work because uh, you're trying to persuade somebody who can't be convinced by facts and logic um, and uh, who's also not in the emotional state to be receptive. So the thing that we're always encouraged to do when we're dealing with somebody who has dementia, and actually caregivers, oftentimes caregivers know this very well, is you don't argue with them. You really try to enter their reality and 
address the emotion that's underneath. So in the case of Julia and Min, Min was accusing her granddaughter of not visiting enough, of being ungrateful and never seeing her. Of course, Julia argued, right? These are the facts. I do visit you. I visited you yesterday. And she got very desperate trying to convince her grandma. So in those moments, I would say that the thing that helps is don't try to convince your grandma with logic or reality. What you're trying to do is actually in that moment, what men was feeling was unloved. <laughs> so mm-hmm. really trying to capture what is emotionally distressing them. Don't worry about what they're telling us. Really try to concentrate on the emotional issue underneath. And really the emotional issue underneath for men was nobody loves me. I'm abandoned and I'm scared. And so instead of presenting the facts, really try to address those emotions. So the idea is, in this case, the ideal thing to say is, Grandma, I'm so sorry you feel that way. I can't wait to see you very soon, I promise. As soon as I can, I'll be right over. So you're really trying to make them feel loved, wanted. I'm so sorry I didn't get a chance. All I want to do is be with you. And by the way, sometimes a caregiver does not feel any of these things. So it's a very difficult, it's actually a very difficult thing to be able to meet the person where they are. Where they are. Yeah, but that's the ideal response. But what happens in all these chapters is I, as we say that the caregivers oftentimes end up arguing despite themselves, even though they know that's not the ideal response. And, uh, but they end up kind of losing control and arguing. Sasha, when you were taking care of Mr. Kessler, so you did that for a year, right? What was the moment where you understood that even you, who had been very educated about what might be the right way to take care of them, what happened that made you realize that maybe there was something more than patience? at play here? Yeah, it took a while because I think I was so busy berating myself, like lots of caregivers (laughs) for my failures. I think that one of the things that I, partly because I'm not a very argumentative person, so it was very jarring for me to find myself losing my patience and arguing with somebody when the voice over my head saying, what are you doing? (laughs) Um, But I find that the the times I began to realize this is when I took a step back and I thought, well, why are you arguing? And I realized that the things that he said to me hurt me. He would accuse me of taking advantage of him. He would accuse me of, you know, of not doing anything. And because I had so much affection for him, ironically, you know, uh, I got angry because I had so much affection for him. He was not just a person with dementia, you know, with a dementia disorder. He was, he was a human being and we had, had a strong bond. (laughs) And there are times that he recognized that strong bond. And then there are times that he didn't. And he said these painful things And I began to wonder, I'm like, why am I taking things personally when I know it's the disease? I began to realize this even more when I started working with caregivers and I realized it was not just my singular failure. There is a, there's a pattern of people arguing and taking things personally. And I began to realize it's partly because just as he's behaving in ways due to his disorder, I was behaving in ways that have to do with the way that our brain is wired. And one of the ways our brain is wired is that we're very social beings. 
Mm. Our brain has very deep social needs. And one of those needs is that need to connect, that need to see reality mutually together. And human beings experience a great deal of social pain when they're not getting that connection. And I see this with caregivers all the time. And we're very sensitive to social pain. So I realized that the time that what's happening with my brain, essentially, what's making me irrational is that it's sometimes it feels connected to him. And then there's sometimes it feels disconnected. And I was just desperately clawing my way into connection again. And that's why I was arguing with him. I said, no, I'm really there to try to, you know, basically I'm not trying to take advantage of you. I'm really there for you. I wanted to get back to that connection again. And of course it didn't work, but that's, that is the, that is what is wonderful and fallible about our brain is that it has such intense social needs that ultimately sometimes just knowing that somebody has a disorder does not matter as much as we think it should. Yeah. And one of the most fascinating and surprising elements of caregiving that you discuss, which I had never read or heard of before, is what you call that we tend to overestimate what the caregiver can do. Mm-hmm. And we underestimate the skills that the patient retains. Yeah. And they're both the patient and the caregiver are under an illusion of control. Correct. So let's start with why we think the caregiver, uh, we overestimate what they can do, and more particularly, why we underestimate what the patient can do. Yeah. Well, I think that the reason that we overestimate what the caregiver can do is because it comes down to our ultimate misconception about the human mind. We tend to think that the healthy brain, so to speak, is reasonable, is logical. And so we see a brain that has not been affected by a disease. They should be able to act logically, right? As soon as you learn, don't argue with your husband or- Then it'll all be good. It'll be fine. As soon as as you're given an instruction manual- Cool. Everything, everything is set to go. But what I explain is that actually part of what makes our brain marvelous and wonderful is also what makes us deeply fallible. Our brain has a lot of needs and it has a lot of expectations and it has certain biases in the way that it views human relationships. And dementia undermines all that. So, for example, that deep, almost this stubborn, relentless need for social connection that I mentioned earlier, we think that as soon as we know our our family members is no longer able to give us that connection, we're like, all right, (laughs) Uh, I get it. But I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. This 50 year uh, marriage. (laughs) <laughs> of of give and take um is uh you know is now completely altered and i understand that i will carry all the responsibility and i will have sh- and i will have no one to share this tragedy with but that's not how our brain works and that's the reason oftentimes we'll see caregivers well meaning caregivers kind of break down and yell at their spouses you have dementia damn it you have dementia <laughs> when they know that they shouldn't say that because they so desperately want to see they want to share a world together with their spouses or with their parents or whoever you're taking care of. So we have so many, we have so much fragility that makes it so hard for us to give over to this disease and act like quote unquote ideal <laughs> caregivers. You know, Dasha, before we get to the uh, person with dementia, one of the things that you just said made me think about friends that I've watched go through 
with a spouse who has a terminal illness. Mm. And I think about how they navigate as best as they can to share what that's like. And, And the patient, the spouse can hopefully articulate what this feels like for them. The the healthy spouse can articulate what it is and they can meet at some place. And although they're living in very different worlds, one healthy and one unhealthy, they are sharing a reality, as you say. Right. And even then it's difficult. Mm-hmm. Right. Even then it's difficult, but they can make an attempt at sharing this experience. And just as you said, imagine a couple married over 50 years and the worst thing that each of them are now going through isn't something that they can share. Right, right. Yeah, I'm so glad that you gave this example because I oftentimes say that as as tragic and awful as a diagnosis of cancer, for example, can be for a spouse, they in their own way could create, you know, could support each other ideally can commiserate with each other and if they're lucky could even create meaning around it mm-hmm. unfortunately people spouses caring for somebody with a dementia um can't do this but our social instincts become no less strong for it we still crave it yeah and the reason that caregivers oftentimes struggle and still do things that to the outside person seem insensitive, but they really come from very adaptive, very good instincts for wanting to have that connection. Mm. Now let's talk about this person (laughs) with dementia because they're a little bit more clever than we think. Oh yeah. (laughs) Um, Again, to go back to our misconception that our, you know, that the human brain is reasonable. And so once you lose this reason, as we say, dementia patients, lose some of their cognitive faculties, it's very easy for us to dismiss them as people who have no kind of cognitive resources. But a lot of social and cognitive psychologists have found that actually, you know, most of the way that we go through life is based on very kind of unconscious mechanisms and adaptations that we have that allow us to function. And it doesn't need higher reason, the thing that dementia disorders presumably take take away. So for example, if, if your husband has dementia, if he's in early stages or even middle stages, and he's a therapist, for example, because he's had decades of being a therapist, those skills become unconscious and he could still be incredibly sophisticated. He might not know how to work with the remote control and he might not be able to follow your instruction not to eat all the food in the refrigerator, but he could be shockingly nuanced (laughs) when he's dealing with somebody. Mm. And so a lot of things that we consider to be higher reason that we consider to disappear because it seems so sophisticated is actually the thing that oftentimes could be incredibly resilient. And that's what's so confusing and torturous for caregivers because you're told to accommodate this person completely. And if you're thinking, well, if I'm going to accommodate this person, this person needs to present as helpless. But the difficult thing with with people who have dementia is oftentimes they're not helpless. They could be funny. They could still be emotionally manipulative if that's how they've been all their life. It's a a skill, (laughs) like any other skill that could persist. They can be extremely sophisticated in terms of how they deal with people. Oftentimes spouses will invite their friends over and say, I just want to warn you, my husband has dementia. But once they're in social company, they could be charming and... (laughs) And, you know, oftentimes spouses tell me, I think that my, fr- my friends think I'm hysterical or crazy. Yeah, yeah exaggerating. 
Yeah, they're, that I'm exaggerating because they see this very charming person who's very capable. Of course, they don't see they don't see them, you know, when they leave and they become confused in the shower. But our mind is so complex and our capacities are so intact when there are skills or personality traits or defense mechanisms that have been with us for years. It doesn't necessarily become upended just because a disease comes along. You have an example in the book, speaking of a therapist, of a person whose friend was a therapist and had developed dementia. And he was conflicted about, for ethical reasons, being sure that this therapist stopped practicing. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the times people blame caregivers for, um, you know, why didn't you take the person's driver's license away earlier? Why didn't you build in more safety protocols? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? I use this example of a therapist to show how this was a man who was so capable that his friend didn't know when he should stop his practice. Didn't right. know when it was ethical. And the truth is, is that when do you know, right? Because to make a decision for another human being in ordinary circumstances, kind of a moral violation. We don't do that. Even if you think your friend or your husband is making a big mistake, you let them do it. The time that you decide to take over <laughs> and make a decision for them, like taking away a license or telling them you got to stop practicing, you know, that is when you feel like they're no longer capable of functioning and making their own decisions. It's such a big leap to know, especially when you see that person is still so sophisticated in many corners of their life. So I really feel so much compassion for caregivers because when do you, when do you do that? And not to mention the emotional baggage, if you're an adult child (laughs) uh, telling your father who probably taught you how to drive, oh, you can't drive anymore. (laughs) Right. Uh, And you know, the path of dementia or Alzheimer's seems unpredictable in and of itself. So, you know, I'm just stunned at how someone would have the ability to find the exact right moment to be intervening. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's impossible to know. One of the couples that you talk about in the book, you start off with, you see a lovely couple engaged in an intimate conversation in a little Greenwich Village restaurant. And the couple are Mitch and Elizabeth. And yet this couple represents another really heartbreaking element of what happens in a relationship. So explain to us what happens when Mitchell and Elizabeth leave the restaurant. Sure. And this would be an example of how much secret capacity people who have dementia actually still do possess. So like you mentioned, Elizabeth and Mitch had a um, had a ritual of meeting in a restaurant. And what would happen is that towards the end of their meal, that w- went perfectly well, Mitch was charming, everything went smoothly, but invariably he would look at her and say, now you go to your place and I will go to mine. So he would speak to her in the tone of a complete stranger, like we're done. Yeah. And during like that- Like they had a meeting. Exactly. And now it's over. You know, all the affection that was in his voice earlier of, you know, uh, of a man who loves his spouse, th- that was all sucked out. Suddenly she was just a, a stranger or an acquaintance. And that was her cue to run home because she needed to get there before he did. And he would arrive home and he would forget that the whole incident 
ever happened. <laughs> he he welcomed his wife with a with a sweetness that he always did. But towards the end of the night, he would treat her like an imposter or like a woman who was, uh, you know, who was pretending to be his wife and he would kick her out. And in the very beginning of that relationship, Elizabeth would argue with him, like, you know, like we said, with a lot of characters, yeah. she would present him the facts. Look, there's a picture of us who we're, we're clearly married. She would give him marriage certificates and she would show him all the clothing that she has in her closet. And um, Elizabeth always felt so bad for arguing with him. And I said, Elizabeth, why do you think that you argued with him? And she gave me one of the most revealing answers. And she said, because he had an answer for everything. (laughs) And that just shows that, and even though his answers were obviously the delusions of somebody who had a disorder, the funny thing is, is that he was so capable of justifying his worldview you know, he was so capable of arguing. He was not this helpless person who had dementia that was staring out into space. He was argumentative. He was able to uh, retaliate every time she gave him an example of how she was his wife. And ironically, that is what baited her <laughs> right. uh, to an outsider, things that were clear symptoms for her. This is still somebody, if you're able to give me excuse after excuse, then I can still convince you. And so th- this is another capacity that people who have dementia can still have, they could be highly argumentative. So they might not be able to follow your instructions, but they can argue (laughs) with you about those instructions. The other element of Mitch and Elizabeth's relationship that I found very touching is you read all the stories that you have in the book. A common theme is blaming themselves Hmm. being ashamed that they're losing their temper or yelling or, you know, doing what they know they Mm -hmm. shouldn't do. And the love that exists. So how is a caregiver supposed to cope with the fact that they feel ashamed and are blaming themselves as Elizabeth did? Yeah. And he was being violent. At some points, Mitch was violent. He'd throw her out. He'd call the cops. She'd be outside in the hall overnight weeping. You know, it's hard to imagine how you move through that. Yeah. I want to touch on something that you said before I dive into what what is a caregiver to do is I want to touch on the fact that ironically, and one of the things that I wanted to emphasize is that the reason that we argue And oftentimes the reason that we behave in a quote unquote bad (laughs) way, it's because of the love, because Elizabeth loved Mitch so much, because she had this connection with him, it made it very hard for her to give up on him and to see him Mm -hmm. in those moments as somebody who, you know, who had these terrible hallucinations. She was still searching for what I call the, for what psychologists have identified as the true self. All of us, when we look at people we know and love, or even people who we don't love, we, we see human beings, not as brains, but as, but as an essence. And she loved that essence. And so it was very odd for her to suddenly treat this person that she respected and loved as somebody who didn't even know who she was. It took a very long time for her to come around to it. And what is a caregiver to do? You said that there's a big theme of shame in this book. And that reflects to me the theme that I've heard with caregivers again and again. They carry so much guilt. They carry so much shame 
One of the reasons I wanted to write this book is that there are so many textbooks that explain the brain of the dementia patient so that we could have grace towards them. This is the reason I wanted to create a text that kind of explains yeah. the foibles of our mind so we could give a little bit of grace to ourselves so we could have an understanding about what our brain is going through. But in a practical way, I think that if you, for any caregiver, one of the things I really urge you to do is that because we are such deeply social creatures is that you will, I say, you will be very tempted to isolate yourself. And what happens, it's a double isolation. You lose your spouse, you lose your parent, and then you're also losing your social support system of friends. And as social animals, if you want to have the stamina to do this very difficult work, you actually have to take care of your brain. And that means having meaningful connections. So I would say if you want to survive this disease, make sure that you don't forget your brain's needs, which are friendships, meaningful work. And if you can, don't allow this disease to consume you because our mind is not built for it. So, Dasha, you know, when I read the book, Mm -hmm. You absolutely bring an element of understanding to what the caregiver is going through. Yeah. And you provide lots of scientific neurological basis for what it is they're even uh, trying to overcome, yeah. you know, that they're, that there's lots of reason that they're acting the way they're acting. but. Merely knowing it mm -hmm. is obviously helpful, but it isn't necessarily executable. Yeah. And as I read it, I thought, wow, at what point should a person give up thinking that they're the ones that can take care of their parent or their spouse? and need serious outside help. And I mean, I'll ask the big social question because obviously money becomes a big issue, but Very have much. you found yourself with patients that you think the toll that it's taking on them is irreparable? You know, I think that one of the incredible things about the human mind that I've noticed is that it's never irreparable is that mm -hmm. I, I find most caregivers get support when it's way too late. It's always the case, but way too late is still so much better than never. Yeah. I think that irreparable is when they never get support and they are caregivers in isolation. That to me is irreparable. And I've seen the effects of this, what happens when they finally lose that person and they're left alone. So I feel that most caregivers will always decide to take care of themselves if they do decide to do that way too late and seek help way too late, but that's just the way that we are for all the reasons that we stated, yeah. because of psychological denial, because of neurological, you know, the neurological proclivities of our brain that don't even see this disease until it's much too late. All that is perfectly normal and human. And most, uh, most of us don't want to deal with reality. So we are going to, we're going to yeah. wait it's a bit too late. And what are caregivers better served by? A peer group of other caregivers 
or their friends? Because I can imagine, you know, that when you go see your friends and you're a caregiver, maybe this just shows how selfish I I might be in this situation, but where you'd want to be talking about what's going on at home. Yeah. And you could also see where friends are like, you know, enough with this stuff already. You know, let's talk about the sunshine or, right. or something. So if a right. caregiver can only pick one social circumstance, which serves them better? Do you have an opinion on that? Um, well, as always, these things are complicated, but I just want to point out what you said was not selfish at all. It is actually just kind of humorously completely on target of what I hear all caregivers saying, they say, I want to talk about this because this is all that I have on my mind, but I don't want to alienate my friends because they're going to stop <laughs> wanting to hang out with me. <laughs> right. So that's actually why so many join groups because they're afraid <laughs> to test their friends' patients. You know, I think that support groups are not right for everybody at every stage of their caregiving. And uh, I say this with a deep love and bias for support groups because, um, because, you know, I, I, I uh, led the program. Um, I think it really depends. So you say, which one is better? It really depends on what your needs are at the moment and what your needs are oftentimes change as the disease changes. I think that the most important thing, whether it's friends, whether it's a support group, whether it's actually even seeing a therapist or joining one caregiver joined an improv class. That is how she- Oh my God, that's so fabulous. Yes, uh, that's how she found her community. And you know, I decided that actually support groups were not right for her because hearing people talk about such dark things was overwhelming. So for some people it's therapeutic and it provides community and validation. For other people it's overwhelming. So that's the reason I never say anyone- Resource yeah. ideal. The thing that I think is absolute is actually some kind of connection. And it really doesn't matter. It's almost like it doesn't matter what the food is. It just matters that you're nourished. <laughs> so uh, I hope yeah. I'm evading your question by saying it really depends, but it, it, it does depend. <laughs> you know, I have a real life example that I was thinking of. I have a very dear friend who took care of her husband over an 11 year. Uh, decline. Oh dear. And she had, you know, great kids. She had good friends. And still, it was her on her own dealing with this. And it was only after 11 years that she said she couldn't physically do it anymore. And he was becoming more aggressive and mm -hmm. all of that. But as I as I was her friend over these 11 years, as I was reading the book, I thought, gee, I really, I wasn't even there enough. And I bet a lot, I bet as, I mean, I would encourage everybody on the planet to read this book. We'll start with that because, <laughs> you know, you talk about that there are currently 55 million people in the world who have some form of dementia, and that's likely to triple over the next 20 years. Yeah. So, you know, the idea that we're going to be even one degree of separation from having a friend who's dealing with it or are having to deal with it is highly likely. Yeah. And, you know, it, it leads me to this bigger question. I think if you read the book, you learn a lot as if you're the caregiver, you learn a lot if you're a friend of the caregiver, but it must motivate you to think about what 
from a policy or support system needs to go on because that's that's your profession now, right? Creating support groups and helping caregivers and patients. But do you run into obstacles that make you think, I wish we had this, that, or the other thing? Yeah. You know, obviously in terms of, there are so many people who could speak <laughs> much more fluently in terms of the policy, but I could only speak in terms of, in general, what I would love to see is that we spend so much money trying to cure Alzheimer's. And of course we should, but what happens is that there are so many things that we could provide that would give tangible relief to both patient and caregiver. And on a policy level, I wish there were more programs that would create pockets of communities where people could actually not have to struggle alone like your friend did. And I thought it was so sweet that you thought about, oh, could I have done more? And I want to say to you, you know, you're just a one friend, right? I think it's very kind of you to wish to do more for your friend. But I think that that is actually a shortcoming of our policies, not your personal shortcoming. Friends be everything to a friend. You can't replace her, you know, her spouse and you can't, um, and you can't fix that grief and that, and the horror that she experienced. That's why it's so important that there are communities and social groups that are simply available for people that they are not isolated and they don't feel like they should just go to, um, an agency or a therapist, but that there are communities that exist around Mm -hmm. us. And it's natural and it's part of life, but we're so uncomfortable around aging. There's such a societal denial about it in general that we don't create these programs. And I would say that these programs would be a lot less expensive than you think. And they'd be so much more nourishing than we could imagine. Dasha, it's been you know, great to hear your thoughts on this and to read the book. I I was particularly charmed by the source of your title, Travelers to an Unimaginable Lands. And I, like millions and millions of people, are Oliver Sacks fans <laughs> and were first introduced to this idea of neurological disorders by uh, the man who mistook his wife for a hat, but tell us why this language from him particularly resonated with you for the title. Yeah. Oh gosh. I've always, I've always loved that line. It just perfectly demonstrates Dr. Sachs's awe and admiration for his patients Mm. because for him, they're not just patients. They're truly our travelers to realms of, in the mind that we don't have access to. But once he talks to them, they grant us access. They teach us about the mind. They teach us about the human condition. And when I speak to caregivers, that's how I feel. I feel that these are not my clients. I feel they're my teachers. And I feel like just because they're caregivers, just because they don't, they're not the ones with a with this fascinating disease doesn't mean that we can't learn just as much from them. They can provide us just as much insight about the human mind based on both how they struggle and how they survive it, based in terms of their difficulties and their resilience. So I feel Mm -hmm. that really caregivers really lead me to think about certain clinical questions the way that I know that um, Oliver Sacks' patients have done that for him. So Yeah, and my last question for you before I read a paragraph from your book that I particularly love, what do you hope a reader takes away from your book? Oh, gosh. Um, I think if you are a caregiver, 
I hope you feel seen. I hope you feel validated. I hope you grant yourself a little bit of compassion. And I hope you engage in those activities that nourish your social needs Mm. because you recognize that what dementia is not just doing to your a family's mind, but what it's doing to yours and yours are, and you are just as important. And if you're somebody who's not a caregiver, like, like, like you, that it does give you a sense of compassion and insight for what people are going through. And ultimately, I hope that if anybody reads it, that in reading these stories about caregivers, they're also learning the story of the human mind in a small way. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to close with this paragraph, which I think is so perfect. We've been talking with Dasha Kipper, the author of Travelers to Unimaginable Lands. And the paragraph is, caregivers face an analogous situation. They have to view patients as both sufficiently different from themselves, the better to stop perceiving intention, and yet sufficiently similar so as not to lose sight of their humanity. It is a fine, nearly impossible line to walk. Dasha, thank you for your time and joining us on Just the Right Book. And really, thank you for writing writing this book. I can't imagine, as I said in the intro, the monumental impact it could have on so many people. Well, thank you so much. This is a pleasure. Take care. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at RJ Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. I can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.